Welcome to the Paradigms and Perspective Podcast. I am your host, Joe Simmons, and on this podcast, we talk about paradigms and perspectives and how people can achieve different results just by changing their paradigm and their perspectives. Let's get started with today's episode. Entrepreneurship. Are you an entrepreneur? Now, as I said, entrepreneur is a sexy word these days. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about what I call the hand of entrepreneurship. These are the five core traits or attributes or characteristics of what I feel a real entrepreneur is. So let's get right into it. This was inspired by Shay Robottom, who's the founder and CEO of Shea Robottom uh, Marketing. And Erica Garcia, who's the founder and CEO of Cancun Cards. So uh, Erica recently flew down to Miami and had an interview with Shay uh, for her podcast. And Shay posted a clip on her LinkedIn prof- on her LinkedIn page. And basically, you know, uh, Shay and Erica were talking about how anybody can be an entrepreneur. And uh, something I love what Erica said was that she says. Everybody can be an entrepreneur. You just need passion to serve your customers and clients. And that's true. You do need passion. But one of my comments was, just because you can become an entrepreneur, that don't mean that you should. And that doesn't mean that everybody wants to become an entrepreneur. So I'm going to break down, like I said, the five core traits or attributes that I feel like uh, all entrepreneurs must uh, must have, and this might even lead to a LinkedIn post. This might even lead to a short book that's under a hundred pages. But uh, this is the intro, so let's get right into hand of entrepreneurship. First up is optimism. This is the most important trait that all entrepreneurs have, and I mean real entrepreneurs. Like I said in a previous episode, not these student entrepreneurs, not these uh, fundraising founders. I mean, a real entrepreneur has optimism. So you may say, I feel like I am an entrepreneur, but how do I actually develop optimism? I'm glad you asked. I feel like there's five major components when it comes to optimism. First up which is the most important fundamental trait or core characteristic of optimism, is a paradigm. I mean, obviously, this podcast is called Paradigms and Perspectives, and perspective is number two. So how can you be optimistic without having a specific paradigm and a specific perspective? Because one of my favorite quotes from Tim Grover is that we tend to focus on the neck down but it's the neck up that controls everything. So, first up is paradigm. As you guys know, or if you don't know, you can go back and listen to the uh, first episode when I talked about paradigms, is that there's five major paradigms, and there's five major perspectives. Now, the last two of the, parad- the, last two of the paradigms actually lead towards optimism. So first is risk and reward. Okay, how does risk and reward affect optimism? It affected a lot because the paradigm for risk and reward is that when you take a certain risk, you expect to get a proportionate reward. I'll say that one more time. When you take a certain risk, you expect to get an equal, proportionate, or even greater reward. So when it comes to optimism, if you taking higher risk, that's usually going to lead to a higher reward. So you're going to be optimistic that's to say, hey, look, I'm taking a higher risk. That means I'm going to have a higher reward, and that reward should compensate for my risk. Now, as we all know, we don't live in a perfect world. You can't bet a thousand. There's going to be some risk that you take in which the reward is going to be either very low or it's going to be negative. But... If you look at the net-net, or if you look at the macro, not the micro, usually the higher the risk that you take, the usually the higher the reward that you get. 
I mean, you can look at Amazon, for example. Jeff Bezos always says that they take billion-dollar bets, and he's created a trillion-dollar company with the rest of the executives and the team at Amazon. So that's a good case in point. Now, the next uh, paradigm would be the abundance paradigm. And this just basically means that everything is in abundance. So this is usually where optimism is at its all-time high. It's usually, you know, where, you know, it can't get no higher than that. It's usually uh, where, you know, you have abundance. So if you have abundance, you usually have a high level of optimism. So uh, that is how, when it comes to entrepreneurship, if you have a risk and reward paradigm and you have an abundance paradigm, then not to make it easier for you to have high level of optimism when it comes to navigating this entrepreneurial journey. Perspective. Perspective when it comes to optimism. Now, once again, like I previously mentioned, there's five uh, paradigms, you know, when it comes to, I mean, not paradigms, there are five perspectives. Well, there are five paradigms, but I meant to say there are five perspectives. And the last three perspectives are really crucial for developing optimism uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship. So the first one is uh, conservative. When you have a conservative value, when you have a conservative values, or you have a conservative perspective, and I feel like in entrepreneurship you should be conservative when it comes to expenses. The reason why I say that is because. Like I said, with the fundraising uh, founders or even just, you know, revenue that's coming in, a lot of times there's a lot of waste. And if you don't have a conservative perspective or you don't have some type of controls to manage or to reduce your expenses, you want to spending money on things just to get tax write-offs. So similar to like in the film industry where they have creative accounting or the studios, come up with creative accounting to reduce the expenses. I feel like corporations and companies have the same thing. They come up with creative accounting or what I used to, what I used to call in corporate justifiable expenses in which when you ask for certain things and they be like, oh, it's not in the budget, but you always find a way to pay for something else. That's because it was justifiable. So when it comes to entrepreneurship, getting back to entrepreneurship, when it comes to entrepreneurship, you want to have a very conservative approach. Uh, I mean, not approach, outlook when it comes to expenses. You know, I feel like, which is, in a way, it's kind of in the middle. You don't want to have a loose rein on expenses where you're just paying for everything. Oh, you know, we can just charge it to the credit card. We'll pay it back later. That's rec- That's called That's called being reckless. But then at the same time, you don't want to be too cautious neither in where you don't spend no money on nothing. Then you don't wind up growing. And then eventually what ends up happening is you don't invest back into the business because you don't want to spend no money. So then you stay as a small business. Now, if you want to be a small business owner, you want to stay as a small business owner, that's fine. But in this ever-changing landscape, that's not a good strategy for survival. So uh, that's why, that's why you know, the conservative perspective is, is good to have when it comes to expenses. Then you have the uh, progressive perspective and you have the abundance perspective. Now, I believe you should have a progressive perspective and an abundance perspective when it comes to risk and revenue. Because getting back to the paradigm uh, for optimism, usually when you take a higher risk, you're going to have more revenue. So if you take a risk to get better marketing partners or if you just take a risk in general just to serve your just to serve more people in your audience or more people in your niche or you just want to serve more people that have the problem that you want to solve it's going to come with more risk you got to manage the relationship you got to get distribution partners you're going to have marketing sales accounting everything else so you're taking a risk to serve more people but you're also Increasing the potential for you, you to increase your revenue. So uh, that's very important uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship as far as, you know, having a progressive and having an abundance uh, perspective.
confidence. This goes without saying. You can't be optimistic or have optimism without confidence. So, uh, that's just a no-brainer that when it comes to optimism, you need confidence. So, um, you know, they, they go very hand-in-hand. Hand. And you just got to develop your confidence, you know. Sometimes, you know, uh, you have to just find different ways to develop your confidence. I think one of the best ways to develop your confidence is through practice. But, you know, this also goes back to, you know, how you learn or how you interact with the world. I'm a visual learner, so a good way for me to increase my confidence would be for me to visually learn what I need to learn and then take action. Another uh, way to be increased confidence can be through auditory. Like I said, through auditory learning, you may learn through auditory, so by you constantly hearing over and over and over and over, that will increase your confidence because it will also uh, cement, you know, that constant hearing in your ear, so you'll be you'll be listening to your inner ear, to take to have the confidence to take the necessary steps. Then there's some people that are very kinesthetic, in which they just got to get their hands dirty. It's not about seeing something. It's not about hearing something. Like they just got to get their hands dirty. So they try something. It doesn't work. Okay, cool. Try something else, and then they find best practices that way through you know actually getting their hands dirty. And then you have some people that are very analytical in which they have to either, they, they either have, everything has to either be systematized or everything has to be broken down with uh, analysis and analytics. So I'll, go, I'll try to go over that real quick. Systematize. Systematize exactly what it says. Everything needs to be broken down in a step. And they also need to understand the practical application of each step. So... Each step, within each step, there might be actually five micro steps within that step. So if you have a 10-step process, they would like to know, and it's a five steps, if it's five micro steps within each step, then for all 50 micro steps, they would need to know like exactly what each micro step is in order to achieve that goal. From an analytical standpoint, which is a little bit more complex, in which first they'll apply the analysis to for comp for for uh, for analysis for for understanding and comprehension. So you apply the analysis first, and then you will turn the analysis, and then you will uh, infuse that with the analytics to show you where you know. Now we have the analysis. Now we have the analytics to show you. Okay, cool. This is the percentage of people that do this. They get this result. Yada, yada, yada. We need to follow the, the in the higher percentage. If it's something positive, that's what we need to do. If that percentage or that metric is low, then that's what we not need to do. So, if 80% of people, you know, save $100 a month to become a millionaire, then that's what we need to do. But if 80% of people eat bad food and overweight, then we need to avoid that and do what the 20% are doing. So uh, those are just the four basic ways on how people build confidence. Uh, like I always say, you know, it doesn't matter how you get the confidence. In my opinion, what matters is that you went and got the confidence, which will lead to optimism, which will help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Next up, when it comes to optimism, is competency. And competency which really is a triangle. So this should be called a competency triangle. But the best way to, well, really, it's really, the it should be called the competency pentagon. Because in order to get competency, this is how it needs to work. So first off, you need to have courage. So you got to be willing to take that risk and, and just be courageous to get started. So that's number one is courage. Number two, your cur- after you have courage, then you need to have, um, yeah, after courage, then you need to have confidence. So courage leads you to confidence, right? But once you get the confidence, then you need to have a great strategy which will help with confidence because 
people like to say execution, as I mentioned before, but strategy is what really makes it pop. Then on top of that, you need to have, uh, and then you need to practice as well. So you need to practice that strategy. And then you need to execute that strategy. And then you need to repeat that. So the way you get competency is, like I said, number one, you got to have courage. Next, you got to have confidence. Then you need to have a great strategy. You need to practice often. And you need to execute to actually get the experience. And then the bonus step to keep that competency high is just to repeat the process over and over and over and over and over again. So it becomes a loop. So it goes something like this. I had the courage. Then I got the confidence. I got good strategies. I practice which helps me then execute. Then I repeat. Then that increases more courage, more confidence. The strategy stays the same. I get better at practicing. I get better at executing and then repeat. So that is how you develop competency. And as I always say, Competency comes before compensation. If you master the competency, then the compensation will appear. And lastly is a future outlook when it comes to developing optimism. Usually, in order to have optimism, you have to have a positive future outlook. You have the right paradigm. You have the right perspective. You have confidence and you have competency. And these all have given you experiences that should produce a positive outlook on life. Because all of your achievements up until that point were once predicated on past actions. And that has created somewhat of a history for you. And they say history usually repeats itself. So, if you've had a history looking into the future of producing great results, then it should only continue going into this new future which you have an optimism. So, those are the five when it comes to developing optimism. The second trait of successful entrepreneurs is passionate problem solving. Now, let's first talk about the problem solving. Like I always say, business 101 is the law of reciprocity. And all clients and customers have one or three things. They either have a need, they have a want, or they have a problem that needs to be solved. I'll say that once again. All customer, clients, readers, audiences, whatever label you want to put on them, they all have three things that they need to be resolved. They have a need, they have a want, and they have a problem. If you can figure out how to meet one of these three, two of these three, or a combination of all three, then that is a great recipe for bringing in revenue to an organization. Next up, like I said, which is what Erica mentioned, is... Passionate energy is required. That's right. Passionate energy is required. Now, I know some people be like, oh, you shouldn't pursue your passion. Or I remember one time I seen a headline, a lady wrote a book where she was saying that you need to inject passion into whatever it is that you're doing. Now, you can inject passion into whatever you're doing, but it's going to be forced. It's going to take willpower. You're going to have to develop strong habits. And it takes 66 days to develop a strong habit to be installed. So, 
you're going to have to go through that. But it's easier when you're passionate, which is meaning basically meaning flow, which is something that you naturally gravitate towards, something that you usually have a high interest in. Or as I talk about in the six degrees of ambition, passionate meaning that something that you can commit to, you can dedicate yourself to, or something that become a lifestyle. And this is the reason why a lot of businesses fail. I failed at trying to launch over 15 different businesses. And why did I fail? It's because I wasn't passionate in it. Well, well, let's just say I didn't have a full flame or full inferno. And getting back to the six degrees of ambition, usually I wasn't willing to commit. One of those 15 ventures that failed, that didn't get off the ground, either I was just extremely, either I had, some of them were just ideas, some of them I was just interested in, or some of them I had a desire to. But I, at the, if I really be honest with myself, I wasn't willing to commit to those. I definitely wasn't willing to dedicate myself to doing those things. And then it definitely become didn't become a part of my lifestyle. So this is why, you know, even when Steve Jobs and you see all these billionaires and they say, you know, you know, you need passion for what you do, it's true. Because like even Steve Jobs said, the reason why he say you need passion is because entrepreneurship is very hard. And if you don't love it, you're gonna quit. He was like, the same people quit. This is from one of the greatest inventors, innovators, and entrepreneurs of all time. I mean, this doesn't even have to be entrepreneurship. You can find something else that you're passionate about. It could be your family. I'm pretty sure you're going to be dedicated, committed, or make that a part of your lifestyle. It could be your health. So, it just depends. But... That energy is going to be required. And your clients, your customers, your audience, they can see that. When the passion is there, they can see it. It's like turning on a it's like turning on a light switch or turn on a light bulb in a scientific laboratory. When you see all that electricity sparking up and you put it over under a scientific microscope, and like I said, in a science, in a raw scientific lab. And you see the electricity vibrating. That's exactly what your customers and your clients are attracted to. But you need that passion to generate the electricity. I'll say it one more time. You need the passion to generate the electricity. So when you see people that are intense and people love that type of energy, it's because they're passionate about it. Not only that. Everybody has something that they're passionate about. You can tell. They become more animated. People light up. You can you can you can feel the energy that's coming off. And it's very exciting. Now we're not even gonna I'm not even getting to the point that, you know, dopamine gets released. Which is the pleasurable hormone. So when you're passionate about it, you wanna do it over and over and over and over again. So that is why Passionate energy is required for passionate problem solving to become a great entrepreneur. And getting back to the need, want, and problem, you have to also give with authenticity and then you will receive the money or whatever reward is. There's another reason why we always preach it's better to give than to receive. And people knowing when you give in, and it's not really authentic. Like you're doing it begrudgingly because you, you know, you're just worried about now. A good example is here in the United States. You know, when you go to fast food restaurants, a lot of people like extra condiments when it comes to their food, and that's one of the main advantages of Chick Fil A. Is that they give out as many sauces as you want. But as I said before, that creates a great experience and it releases dopamine. So you want more of that. You can expect that. Whereas you go into McDonald's or Burger King or whatever and they tell them, oh, don't give it out. Or they tell them, hey, that's going to be 25 cents for each additional sauce that you want. And people be like, okay, well, fine. I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A. But that's because they're losing money. 
So you're going to lose a loyal customer over a quarter. You're going to try to pass a quarter cost down to your customer. But see, Chick-fil-A understand all of this stuff. Now, they don't exactly use Blue Ocean Strategy because they, you know, their prices are not cheap. But here's the thing. People are willing to pay more for a better experience. This is what people don't understand. It's the same thing when you go to Starbucks. I love going to Starbucks. And a lot of people be like, oh, you pay all that money? Yeah, I go, but I go for the experience. I don't go just for, you know, the hot chocolate, which is my, the white hot chocolate, which is my favorite. I'm going for the experience. And so when you give in an environment which is based on culture, but when you give with authenticity, then the money will come in. You won't have to worry about that because people see that you're being genuine and that you're being authentic to the core values of the company and to yourself. And authenticity is very, very important. So, if you are seriously considering entrepreneurship, make sure you give with authenticity. And then the money will come in based on developing a long-term relationship for trust. One of my favorite traits, which is definitely what separates real entrepreneurs from lifestyle entrepreneurs and small business owners. So this we're going to talk about leadership and team building. Yeah, that's right. Leadership and team building. We're going to talk about how leadership actually affects team building. The first major leadership style is autocratic. And this is basically, in simple terms, that's basically mean do as I say. And these people usually think they're the smartest people in the room. You can also say this is kind of a form of a dictatorship. And in my personal opinion, this does not really help build the best teams. This usually creates a lot of chaos and division and resentment and sabotage. Because everything is do as I say. And you're not really open to feedback. So from an autocratic standpoint, uh, later, yeah, you know, it may start off that way, but, you know, life is a is a marathon, not a quick sprint. This works great for something that's a quick sprint, but people always remember how you treat them. And people want to feel like they have freedom to make decisions and they want, you know, inclusion. So um, I would say, you know, stay away from being autocratic. Now, that doesn't mean that that can't work for you. That's just my recommendation. You may have a small entrepreneur shop where you're making one to two million dollars a year, and autocratic may work for you where you have a small team and that people are online and they're just happy to have a job. But if you're really trying to really scale, autocratic won't help you get there. Next is authoritative, or this could be the visionary that basically says, follow me. Usually, you know, you are the guy and you provide guidance. Uh, I'm naturally a visionary, so this is definitely be my leadership style in which I would say, you know, follow me. I'll have the guide. I have the blueprints. But I really like this formal style is because real, real visionaries like I said, they provide the guide, and they're open to suggestions. They're open to feedback. They're open to changes. So uh, it's not necessarily that they got to go perfect. This is just a blueprint. This is the guide. And here's the thing about us visionaries. We're more focused on the goal or, as my mentor Roger James Hamilton would say, task-based leadership. In a sense that we're focused on the goal. We're, fo- we're focused on achieving that goal. Now, yeah, we may give you a guide. We may give you guidance in the blueprint. But you don't necessarily have to follow that guide or follow that blueprint to get to that result. We care more about the result. Did we get the result? Did we 
meet the deadline? Did we do what we, everything that we needed to do to get there? So there's a lot of flexibility and there's a lot of collaboration when it comes to authoritative uh, leadership. And this actually is great for team building because um, when you're a visionary, you have big dreams and you have a lot of things that you want to get accomplished, which allows for you to help build other leaders underneath you. And the more leaders you have underneath you and the more team continuity and collaboration that you have, the quicker you can get to your dream. And we always usually have multiple projects, so we'll want to be in deadlines either ahead of time or on time because we have so many leaders. So authoritative um, leadership is great, like I said, for developing uh, future leaders to uh, achieve uh, bigger dreams and goals. Uh, Next up is the pace-setting leader. And this leader has the mindset of uh, do as I do. And usually they're running fast and they have high standards and they sit the bar really high. Uh, most people can't keep up with this because, you know, you're moving at the speed of light. So this here is really one of the worst leadership styles. And it's bad for team building because most people do not have stamina and endurance to last and this is basically just this is basically trying to run a marathon at a very fast pace and you have a, a a high bar now like i said some people are able to do this but for the majority of people they can't keep up with the pace it's too much and it's too fast so um it can help to build teams but it's very rare and very highly unlikely that you will see uh, a lot of great leaders that are built off of, you know, pace-setting leadership. Unless that's the culture where everything is super light-speed, like, you know, Verizon Fios, fiber-optic, high-speed internet type of culture in which everybody would have to be running fast and the bar has to be set real high. But then that can also increase your cortisol and that can also increase your stress and have a lot of negative uh, benefits to the overall health of your employees. So, like I said, with pay set, I don't highly recommend it, but it can work for the right cultures. Next up is the democratic leadership style. This is the what do you think. So these leaders usually try to get their opinions of others before they make a final decision. As I mentioned uh, earlier about, you know, getting the opinions of others and inclusion, uh, a lot of employees like the Democratic side because, like I said, everybody wants to give feedback. Everybody wants to feel like they had a part in it. So uh, Democratic leadership works very well when you want the collective effort and you feel like you want to represent everybody involved. Not only that, it also increases happiness too in the workplace. I think when everybody can have a contribution, no matter how small, or how big it is. So, uh, the democratic is very good for team building because everybody wants to be validated. Everybody wants to feel appreciated. So, uh, the democratic leadership is great uh, for overall leadership and also for team building. Coaching leadership. So the coaching leadership is exactly that. It's involved with coaching. So the coach would always say, consider this. And they are a very strong proponent of that. Talent can be developed. So even though I'm naturally authoritative, uh, I also had a coaching leadership style too where I was able to develop a lot of talent in a short period of time. Uh, producing high results. So, um, and then especially, it's especially popular these days uh, with my generation, the millennial generation. The millennial generation definitely favors the uh, coaching leadership, but that is usually uh, not as not as what is prevalent in today's society. Usually, it's a uh, 
autocratic uh, leadership style that I'm seeing heavily prevalent in the, especially the corporate America arena, is very heavily autocratic and not enough coaching. And then, but this is why a lot of millennials will probably wind up working for a lot of millennial founders in the future, especially, you know, and then you're going to have Generation Z coming up. They're going to have things that they want too. So, uh, you know, the autocratic is definitely going to need an innovation uh, makeover, but the the coaching uh, leadership style uh, works very well where, you know, talent uh, needs to be developed. But also, too, the downside to this is that you can develop the talent, but you also need to develop the leaders underneath that. Uh, Bill Belichick is a perfect example of that. A lot of people criticize him for that. That Yeah, he's a great coach, six-time Super Bowl champion, and that even that, you know, he's developed some of the best talent, but he doesn't develop his staff. And they said that's usually why a lot of, because he also knows that a lot of the staff are going to want to become coaches. And it's all about winning. So he don't develop his uh, staff so that in the event, if he faced them in the future, he has a higher probability of winning. I think recently the only coach that defeated Bill Belichick in the game was uh, Mike Vrabel, and that was when the Tennessee Titans played uh, the Patriots, I think about a year or two ago. So that's the downside to uh, coaching leadership style is that you spend too much time developing the talent, but you don't develop the uh, the actual leadership or the actual pe- uh, people that are leading these people. So... Uh, just make sure that you develop the talent and you develop the leaders that are leading the talent. Affiliative leadership. This is basically when it says that people come first. This is all about managing the emotional equity of the team. And this is great. The people should come first because when people come first, they're taken care of. And when they're taken care of, uh, they can produce uh, great service to clients and customers, producing great revenue. Uh, similar to kind of a segment that I mentioned with, you know, Jack Ma uh, talking about, you know, the importance of taking care of people. And also, too, Richard Branson shares those same sentiments. But here's the problem, though. The problem that lies in this is that if you put your people first too much, and you don't hold your people accountable, then that's when the problems are going to happen. And I can account from this from personal experience where I had a great leader, at least what I thought initially. And like I said, he's still a great leader. And initially I was like, yeah, man, it's the best thing I ever had, which is true. But the problem is, is that people learn quickly that he was a very emotional leader. And as long as you had a strong emotional equity with him, you can get what you want. So, like I said, I was pissed off about it. Because why? That left me to be the janitor. So because this person had high emotional equity with the leader, now I got to come in and clean up their crap. Because there was low accountability that was implemented in the department. And like I said, that frustrated me and that pissed me off for a long, long time because we had low standards, at least to, you know, my opinion. But I used to tell them, if you can meet my standards, you can meet the standards of everything else because when executive management and senior management is sending us stuff to work on, they don't care about because you got a low skill set because you got low competency. They don't care about that. You got to be able to get the job done. That was another reason why, you know, too, that, you know, I, I pushed as far as I could. But that was another reason why we had high um, QA rate, quality assurance rates. We had high quality numbers. Why? Because I used to set the bar high, especially when it came to compliance, too. I used to set the bar high. 
And so that means that if you met my standards, when compliance came in or with QA or legal, whatever, did they review? You wouldn't have to worry about that because my bar is set higher than this. But after some disagreements, I said, okay, fine. I got tired of being Superman. I got tired of saving people. So what happened? You report. You want to report me? Cool. Go ahead and report me to the leader. Now you're on your own. And what happened? I stopped saving people. Department numbers went down drastically. Leaders had to call an emergency meeting. This is unacceptable. This and this is that. And I'm looking like, see, I told y'all this was going to happen, but nobody wanted to listen to me. So that would be my main caution when it comes to if you are a affiliative leader or you plan on building people like that. Yes, put people first, but you just got to make sure you hold them accountable. And it has to be some type of standards they have to meet. If not, it's a recipe for disaster and for chaos. And laissez-faire, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, is a French word. But basically, this type of leadership means mean that you swim with the current. And this works well when you have self-motivated and high achievers. Or what I used to call self-policing teams. And we've I've had leadership at times that where they allowed me to be run a lazier affair uh leadership style in which I was the primary leader on that team that executed this type of leadership. Where because I was self-motivated and I turned people into high achievers. They didn't have to micromanage us. So this worked out great. Uh, But like I said, only for the high achievers. We also had people that were very low achievers or people that did the minimum. And that's usually where you can get into trouble when you don't have people that are self-motivated or high achievers. So uh, I would only use this as caution. That make sure that you have highly motivated and high achievers. Otherwise, just like with the affiliate leadership, if it's left unchecked, it's also a recipe for disaster. And trait number four is adaptability. This is so crucial. It's funny that this is trait number four because this is principle number four in my book, uh, Mad Money, and also going to be, you know, into, you know, the updated version of 12 Ingredients, but adaptability. I mean, COVID is a huge example of adaptability. You have to be willing to adapt in life. That's, uh, as I always say, life is all about adjustments. You take an action. You get the feedback, you either adjust or you don't adjust, or a.k.a. take action or adjusted action. But, yes, life is all about adjustments. That's all that it is. It's about adjustments. So, then, but there's four different phases when it comes to adaptability. The first phase is, you stay stuck. So most people, yeah, you know you need to adapt, man. Yeah, you need to know things need to change, but you just stay stuck. It's because of, you know, you're familiar, you're comfortable, so you just stay stuck. You're like, hey, I'm just going to stay stuck for now. And usually the only way you really move out of that phase is that you have to be hit hard and the pain of not adapting is greater than the pleasure of staying stuck. Phase two is a warm-up. Some people, you got to warm them up. They just don't stay stuck. So you got to warm them up like an oven before they start to adapt. It takes them a while. You got to, you know, let the, or as as we say, you got to let the oven preheat. It's the same thing with a person. You got to continually Warm them up, warm them up, warm them up. Basically, you got to get that momentum going. You got to get that spark going, you know, before they will adapt 
then uh, phase three is small changes. So now that you know you're not stuck anymore, now you warmed up. You will take small changes. You won't just jump out there and just do stuff fast. You will, you know, take small, slow, methodical steps towards changing, towards adapting. And then the final phase, which is uh, the fast implementation. So you got some people, they know they need to adapt. They do it real fast. They don't wait for things to happen. They just go. And then because they understand adaptability, they can always adjust. So we're just going to go ahead and get going. We're not going to spend too much time staying stuck. We're not going to take decades to get warmed up. And we're not going to just do stuff micro, micro, micro and take forever to get to know. We need to do this now. The writing is on the wall. The innovation is coming. We need to move before it hits us over the head with a brick. So these are people that move very fast. So, and you definitely need adaptability in entrepreneurship because things are changing all the time. So uh, number four uh, trait is adaptability. And the last one, number five, which is you need persistence and you need patience. Yeah, that's right. You need persistence. You need patience. Persistence, meaning that you never give up. I love what they asked Elon Musk when he was willing to invest in all the money that he had collected from PayPal, and he was willing to invest in, you know, in SpaceX and in Tesla, and you know, they became successful. But even during some of those space launches, well, I think it took Elon Musk like, yeah, it took him three chances to get it right to have a success when it came to SpaceX. And they asked him about the first two failures, and he said, you never give up. You know, he's our modern day Tony Stark, our modern day Iron Man. Elon Musk basically said, never give up. And you always hear about this too, never give up, never give up. And it's so true. I done had several times in my life where I was ready to give up. But I had persist. And like I said, I'm, you know, in January, I'm going to be starting my own entrepreneurial journey. January 2021. But you can't never give up. I mean, supposedly, they say Walt Disney went bankrupt between three and ten times, depending on the story. But he never gave up. And that's what I wish for you, to never give up. And this is also what I wish for my future self, that I never give up neither. Just go for it. And I love what Jack Ma said. From the time you're, like he said, from 18 to 40, you should pursue whatever dream you want to from that time. From 18 to 40, pursue whatever dream you want to. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't pursue a dream after 40. But you have a higher probability of doing it. The reason why is because that's 22 years of time. The reason why he don't recommend after 40, and like I said, this doesn't mean that you can't. If you are listening to this and you want to be an entrepreneur at 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, you can do it. But the thing about it is you don't have a lot of time. So you got to definitely be very careful and very strategic with the moves that you make because you don't have time for miss, miss, missteps. I mean, Colonel Sanders never gave up. You know, he was in his 60s when he sold, you know, KFC. And that works. But I agree with Jack Ma. From 18 to 40, give it a go. But like he said, when you turn 40, you really need to know what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and go all in on your strengths. Like Gary V says, you know, you know, you got to punt your weaknesses. Go all in your strengths and punch your weaknesses. So, like I said, if you're under 40, this is perfect time for you. Keep going. But after 40, you know, you kind of really want to really go in all on your strengths. Like I said, that doesn't mean that you can't make it work after 40. But just remember, you got to really know what you're doing. Because, you know, 
the average person lives to 78, 80 years old. You know, like I said, that doesn't mean that you can't be like Colonel Sanders and at 60 hit it big, but you can say yourself some heartache and some time. So, but at the end of the day, no matter what age you are, never give up. And then while we're talking about this, patience, long game. You gotta dig in. You gotta think in decades, not days. As I said too in the Jack Ma segment, he thinks in decades. You gotta have big dreams. You gotta have big goals. You gotta have. You gotta think in decades. Because when in your twenties you can struggle, in your thirties you can struggle, but in your forties and fifties you can make up for it. And then I love what they say, you know, we overestimate what we can do in a day and we underestimate what we can do in a decade. I'll say that one more time. We overestimate what we can do in a day and we underestimate what we can do in a decade. You can do a lot in a decade. You can completely change your life in a decade. So my final words for you when it comes to Pursuing this hand of entrepreneurship and using these five core traits or characteristics when it comes to being an entrepreneur is to persist, to never give up. And remember, have patience. This is a long game. You can become the gold medal entrepreneur champion that you seek. Go out and get it and change the world. Thank you for listening to the Paradigms and Perspectives podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time out to listen to this podcast. We really hope that you got some value out of this podcast and that this podcast will assist with you changing your paradigm and changing your perspective so that you can live the life that you was meant to live. And we look forward to seeing you in another podcast episode. Thank you and have a good day.